This is the Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast, aimed at helping you live an active and healthy life in and around Somerset and Union County, New Jersey. This podcast is brought to you by Strive to Move, located in Warren and Berkeley Heights. Strive to Move helps active adults in New Jersey get back to doing what they love pain-free. All right, our guest today needs no introduction as he's been here before. We have Dr. Nick. How are you today, Dr. Nick? I'm great, Justin. Thanks for this opportunity again. Uh, I look forward to our conversation. Absolutely. So as the quarantine has, has gone forward, you were actually one of the first people I thought about because I put myself back and I was telling my wife this. Um, if I was a high school senior right now, if I had to do online high school, I'd be like, this is probably pretty good because honestly, like it's a waste of time to be in school. I remember thinking if I didn't have to go to high school graduation, I would have been ecstatic because I didn't want to do that. But if my senior season of baseball for me would have gotten canceled, I would have been a, a wreck. So I have to imagine you've seen this and, and might be your, I don't even know, most busiest time that you've ever had, but what are you seeing right now with your athletes, whether it's their senior year of high school, senior year of college that just got cut off? Tell me about that. Well, it's impacted everyone, obviously, at a very high degree. So what's happening with the transition, so even from eighth grade into high school, high school into college, college into life, or even the Olympic athlete that I was training, you know, for this year's Summer Olympics, is that this is a period of time of, of grief, you know. So when you look at what grieving is, it's not just what you had that you no longer have, which most people look at, you know, in terms of death. Grief is also about what you dreamed you could have that you can no longer have. So you're, you're not going to walk for high school or college graduation, and you're not going to have that opportunity either to be a county champ, a state champ, or in a couple of cases with my high-performing athletes, national champs, right. let alone those that are trying to go on into a professional career. So I have a number of golfers, as you know. And so Q School for Canada has been change or canceled and so we have athletes of all different levels let alone uh, let's take a look at, a, at some high school athletes even though it's this late in the year some colleges haven't made their complete selection for their golf teams and so they were counting on not necessarily their high school golf but they were counting on you know summer golf and taking a look at competitive scores so it's impacted uh, individuals and certainly non-athletes as well and there's this whole process now that they're going through about grieving. And so um, take me back to when I, I think the NCAA tournament and the basketball NBA was, I think the first realization I had, like, this is, this is going to get serious. Um, what, where did you start to see either you had parents calling or athletes calling of them kind of recognizing what was starting to happen and, and what was that process like even for you because you've been doing this a long time but you haven't seen this before no correct so it really started when the ncaa talked about you know canceling um you know the rest of the winter season and then a whole spring season that's when things started to occur so there were kids in a transition you know because they were playing winter sports in high school and college but now that was going away and they didn't really know what it meant so it was still up in the air all of that produced anxiety. Anxiety is when you, you don't have an answer to something you don't really understand, or you're creating a probability of something that's much higher than what the truth is. So that's when the transition occurred. And then all of a sudden, you know, sort of like a flood of when the spring athletes knew that they were done, that the season was over, 
and what does this mean now for the transition going into the next step of high school, college, or you know whether or not they're going to turn pro or whatever. That that's when it really kicked in. And so, I guess then let's get into it. What are some of the conversations or advice you would that you've had for? Um, I, I guess we could ask it in a couple questions. Potentially, the the high school senior who might not be going on to the next step that this was their last chance to play. Uh, at a high level and, and do what they wanted. And then you have the kid that was trying to get the scholarship. So his, he's uncertain. How do you deal with the different sides of that? Well, let's take a look at the athlete who's probably not going on, you know, to either play collegiate sports or professional sports. And so that's now over. And so I, I try to help them understand that grief is about what we just talked about. And that because they what they've been dreaming for, for either all their lives or certainly at least the least couple of months or a year or so, um, that that's over, that they have to come to, you know, what we would describe as acceptance. And that's really the embracing of truth. Acceptance, unfortunately, with the root word of the accept is, is that it's not acceptable, but acceptance in a psychological way is to, you know, bring it inside of you and to, um, deal with the reality that things aren't going to be any different. So that's the first step is to come to the awareness that this is the truth. So we'll take that and we'll take, now we'll combine, you know, the next level of athlete who couldn't get on to the next step, but maybe something else might take place. So when you look at adversity, this is a great opportunity to excel. So um, in the book, The Obstacle is a Way, you know, where things seem to be thwarting you, you actually see it as an opportunity to use this situation to react differently than you could have been prepared for. And that's a real change in mindset, but when you're a gritty player, we've talked briefly about grit, when you're a gritty athlete, a gritty person, this doesn't stop you. It just means now you have to become creative in taking the process of decision-making and applying it to something that you are totally unprepared for and then finding a way to what we would describe as have personal growth. You know, as you're talking about that, we got on to discuss the, the athlete specifically, but uh, if we took that clip and applied it to the conversations that we've had around business owners and entrepreneurs who are in the exact same situation, it, it obviously applies. And I know your work also is in the, in the corporate setting, but it, and the reality is it's a tough time to learn it, but at 17 or 21, for people that are going to go on to any sort of career, they're going to be faced with something like this adversity, job loss, job change, boss change. And if, if we can get to the place where we actually see it that way and use it from what I'm hearing, you're saying it should be an opportunity where it's going to set us up for success later. No question uh, that if you, know, my basic idea is that uh, all of my work is around decision-making uh, and it's always around excellence uh, and execution is never around winning. So on a daily basis, uh, we all have opportunities to make decisions and we can change our mind about that, you know, based upon the conditions. So if we're flexible minded, if we're open minded, we can see this is that opportunity. So adversity um, is a, a great way to stimulate high level performance. If you go back even to uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, I don't know if you know the work, Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he was a Jewish psychiatrist in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. And he wrote the book, um, you know, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, based upon 
having courage and based upon having a purpose and you also integrated love. And so when you look at this, there's a purpose for everything that we do. Every day we have the opportunity to excel no matter what we're faced with, no matter what adversity. Those individuals that are open-minded, flexible, and are willing to take reasonable risks and adapt, they will excel. You can see a lot of industries now are coming up in handling things differently than they would have before. Where car manufacturers now are making face shields. Um, and uh, even uh, companies that are making perfumes are making face masks. Mm -hmm. So that there's a, a retooling in a real way mm -hmm. and being able to use um, our, uh, our meaning, our purpose, or what we should be doing for all. So it's a great opportunity for all of us to work on excelling. With youth athletes always comes parents, good, bad, or indifferent. How, if you're speaking to a parent right now, right. Um, which truthfully at this point has never been more important because in normal times, quote, um, the athlete has their coach, has their teammates, and now not really. Right. So if you're a parent, uh, if you're a parent out there, you know, it's super important that they know how to handle this as well. So what's the advice that you're giving to parents or what do you want them thinking about? I'm glad we have this opportunity to talk about this, Justin. It's a passion of mine to offer the following comments. Uh, there is no greater time, I mean, always as a parent, you have to act responsibly. But it's very, very important now for parents to demonstrate that going forward, in spite of the fact that we don't know what's going to happen, that they're going to offer security to their children um, and that they're going to come through this okay. And certainly most people are doing that, I believe. But it's very, very important, particularly if you have a child who has a predisposition to becoming anxious. If they see a parent that's becoming anxious, it's going to make things worse. So parents have to demonstrate, uh, particularly at this point, that this is an opportunity for children to learn from them as a, as a role model uh, to uh, demonstrate security. Now, the other essential factor, and certainly parents need to do this all the time, is to demonstrate understanding to their children. Now, understanding isn't a proof. It means that you recognize that your child may have a different response than you do. Now, what understanding does is that it fosters a sense of belonging, which is essential in family functioning, as it is in, in terms of any group, whether it's business or sport. And when you look at how that actually influences the immunological system, something that you're very well aware of, right, is that uh, physical health will affect mental health, and mental health will affect physical health. So we've seen the studies that children and adults who feel like they belong because they're understood, their immunological system is actually stronger than individuals who don't feel like they belong or feel understood. Talk more about that from a, I guess, a, a brain function scientific perspective to the best of, of you know, your knowledge and understanding. One of the things that I've been kind of preaching so far or thinking about, especially during this time, is I, there's, there seems to be like a divide among people politically, whatever you want to call it. There are people that are on one end saying, this isn't a big deal, go back to life. And there's other people that are completely, you know, freaked out and afraid and staying and, and not doing anything. And my thought has been, it's, it's important to be careful often on both ends. I mean, obviously the ones going out and not being cautious is, is self-explanatory, but the ones staying in and they're so stressed and they're and looking at things online, my feeling is what's happening to your immune system and your brain function when you're so stressed and concerned and what are you passing along to either your kids or yourself? Can you talk talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. Well, first of all, stress is a cumulative process. The simple definition of stress is anything that moves the individual away from equilibrium. So going on vacation can be stressful. If you've been to Disneyland as a parent or as a child, you'll see a lot of people walking around that are not very happy. Uh, sure. Interesting. And one of the reasons why is because it's stressful. You're trying to have a good time. You want to make sure your kids are. So your child wants to do this. You want to do something different because you want them to have the experience. So we keep going back to this whole understanding piece. So we have to reduce the impact of stress. So it's incumbent on parents, uh, any person in a position of leadership is to understand what everybody else is going through. Now, you understand what happens if the stress increases and it goes beyond the threshold. Once that occurs, your autonomic system starts to react in a very different way. And the exposure to prolonged stress with the fight-flight mechanism means that the, um, the mechanisms of the way the body works is that the energy is directed to the extremities and not to uh, what's going on in the core, so your digestive system. So all that kind of stuff gets affected. So it's, you have to be cautious about how much you expose yourself to looking at information where you're getting contradictory information about false positives, you know, in antibody testing or false negatives in antibody tests, all that kind of stuff. Because if you continue to surround yourself with not knowing what is going to take place, you will exacerbate that stress response. Is there a way to objectify or put an objective measure around like the idea that a parent, maybe they're not verbally like passing along fear and worry to their child, but within the household, they can still, if they distress and worry, the, the child will kind of feel that. It's almost like if the parent is stressed, the child will be stressed. Um, is there a way to kind of, how do you think about that? I think it's a good question about how do you objectify it? I mean, first of all, um, the studies almost universally report 70 to 80% of all communications are nonverbal. So in spite of the parents saying, um, everything is going to be fine, but it's going to be the tone or it's going to be the way in which their parent is responding. It's going to be what the parent's actually doing, not just necessarily what they're saying. So absolutely, you have to watch how you're um, sending off um, information, uh, what we describe as a congruence. That is what you believe you're actually demonstrating. So could you say to your child, you know, I'm not sure how we're going to get there, but I know that we're going to get there and we're all going to be fine. Um, or I'm not sure we're going to be fine, but we're going to do the best that we can. Whatever the conversation is, it should be authentic, except that if it's going to produce anxiety, then I would certainly caution parents to um, let children know that they're anxious about it in a way that's going to exacerbate that. Now, as we've talked about this before, Justin, you know that there are certain predispositions. Some kids come into the world born with a predisposition to become anxious have low thresholds of responsiveness, high intensities of reaction. Parents have to become very concerned about responding to children differently. One size does not fit all. Is it true or is there research that high anxiety, high stress parents generally produce higher anxiety, high stress children or no? Well, it's certainly going to be modeled. So it's an interesting question. You can find children that have higher thresholds, which will not have the same kind of responses. Uh, but I would say that in a more generalized way, uh, you're, you're teaching children how to behave uh, as a result of the way you're reacting to them. I, 
I may have given the example about walking. Maybe we didn't talk about this, about every child walks who doesn't have a disability, right? Mm -hmm. So when a child's starting to walk around one years old, the child takes a few steps, mom or dad's got their hand holding onto their fingers and now they let them go and the child falls down. Child gets back up again and he starts walking. Now if the child falls down and the parent says, oh, did you get hurt? And they go over and they stop the kid from walking and try to make sure that they can get up. They're now going to teach the child that they should become more reliant on the parent versus let the child try to learn this on their own. So from simple examples like that, where parents are teaching them, you fell down, you can get up and get yourself walking versus, oh, did you get hurt? You start teaching children at a very young age about how parents are going to start to influence them, maybe if the child's not even having that reaction. Right. And I, I would assume also in a lot of situations, probably more of the extreme examples where you see the opposite. Uh, if you, if at some point you look at your parent, you get to an age and you're like, I, I don't want to be that way. Right. Like my dad's an alcoholic. I don't want to be an alcoholic. Right. Or my dad's, my mom's always super stressed. I'm going to be the opposite. Right. Right. But part of the problem of that is at what point do you recognize that? And right. so when you start looking at inborn predispositions and what learning's taking place up to that point, uh, there's, a, there's a point at which you start crossing it and that, that's when you start having difficulties being able to modify those behaviors. And so I guess the, the question that I have is, is surrounding that, that behavior. And again, probably no more time than now that they're influencing it as a, as a parent or someone that has young children around, is it more like the certainty of being certain that you don't know and confident in that potentially? Cause we're in a situation where uh, like parents usually have more experience dealing with things, but in this situation they don't, right? No, they don't. But then this, this becomes a, you know, kind of a maybe confusing for people to um, accept that when you trust uh, something it's because you have proof right so you either trust someone because they've demonstrated uh, their proof that they can be trusted or uh, you trust them until they demonstrate to you that they can't be trusted but there's always there's always a proof element now when you look at faith faith has no basis in proof but it's future oriented and there's no doubt so if a parent can say look, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but you know, dad and mom, you know that we're going to work hard. We're going to do everything we possibly can to protect you and our family and make things safe. When you have faith in yourself and you have faith in someone, that transcends the whole issue about proof and trust. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a great time to work on the difference between trust and faith. And when you look at what faith is as a belief with no proof and no doubt, you know that about yourself. You have faith in yourself about certain elements and maybe not other elements, right. but that's what you'd want to be engendering certainly in the family dynamics. Have you encountered any of your athletes at the professional or I guess even collegiate level that, you know, things are starting to open up that are afraid for their own health to go back? I've not uh, had the experience where there's a fear about that. I've had, um, just the opposite, uh, give me the opportunity because they've been able to demonstrate, you know, their own uh, security about taking care of themselves. And, and two of one, I would say that of the high level athletes that I'm working with, uh, even in high school, parents may have some more influence about that, but certainly the professionals, those going on from senior year, trying to get into the next step of their career, uh, they've done things in a very safe way. So I think that they now have 
probably that process of having faith in themselves that they know that they can be smart enough to put themselves in reasonable places. I put myself back in this situation. Let's say I'm a junior in high school now, and it would have happened to me. I played baseball in the spring, and that gets canceled. And we're in New Jersey, and, and quite frankly, going into my senior year to play football, we don't know that that's going to happen either. Right. Uh, what do we do? How do we – or if we're going back to school in the fall or all these different things. So uh, we, it's almost like at this point we've gotten – I think about Hurricane Sandy. I know I'm going all over the place. But Hurricane Sandy happened. And we knew that it was going to be bad for this period, but when it stopped, we were going to go back and like life was going to go back to normal, so to speak. Right. The situation we've gotten hopefully through the worst part of it, but we're still not sure what the next two, three, six months include. And from an athlete perspective, it's like, what now? So how do we think about that? Well, you know, when we look at what's called reasonable anxiety, Reasonable anxiety is when you don't have an answer to something because it would be unreasonable to have the answer. You can't tell if you're going to win the game because you even haven't started. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't tell how well you're going to play because the game hasn't started. So that would be what we would describe as reasonable anxiety. So I think that um, athletes um, can have reasonable anxiety. So I think it'll be addressed in that regard. It's reasonable to be anxious about this. We don't have the answer. I would, I would come to the acceptance that we have to deal with the fact that we don't know. I don't think that that's easy, uh, particularly since there's so much dependent upon this. You know, some careers are dependent upon this. Collegiate careers and, and professional careers are dependent upon what's going to take place. That being said, I certainly would say that everybody's in the same position. Right. It, that seems like a reasonable statement, but some people are not that way. I mean, so when you take a look at some of the golfers, they were counting on what was going to happen this summer. They have yeah. a young man who wants to transfer. And, uh, you know, because there's probably not great opportunities either for some of the state events, uh, you know, he's a collegiate athlete already, and he's already in a portal, you know, for wanting to transfer. He's in a really tough spot. I don't know that we have any other answers other than it's outside of our control. All right. Yeah, it's um, it's it's certainly it's certainly interesting um, on a lot of levels, and um, I I'd like to think that I don't I, I use Twitter a lot as more for news, and it's just so interesting to me. Like you said, to me the unique thing about this situation was that it started where I felt everyone was kind of dealing with this together, but as this has gone on, specifically I think collegiately more, what we've seen is that there is a massive divide or difference like you know it, it looks like the sec the southeast i mean they're ready to go and like they're, they're all all systems ago where the northeast michigan the west coast not so much and it feels like now there is a divide amongst like where you are and i think college athletics shows that the most because it is very regional yeah i so this is um a theory opinion mm -hmm. um I think that the NCAA will be hard pressed not to allow football to take place. Okay. Uh, you know, it, it certainly is a money maker for many universities. They're very dependent upon it and whether they're playing to uh, empty stands. And, but I, I think that the NCAA might make a decision uh, about sports in that regard. I think that the NCAA will have greater influence on what happens to high school sports than I think professional sports. So if the NCAA, uh, you know, allows certain sports to take place, 
I think it's going to be hard for even the different leagues, uh, conferences rather, to have different opinions about it. Now, maybe they'll stay out of it. I don't know what would happen. But I think some athletes have that basic idea. And most of the collegiate athletes that I'm talking to have a very similar opinion about that. They're not going to let football uh, be on the, on the uh, sidelines this year. That's going to go. And as a result of that, you know, they're in preparation. That's the way they're looking this over. And that's how they think other sports will go. They won't just ban football. Now, when you look at the close contact in football, certainly wrestling, it's a lot different than golf. That's why golf is allowed to take place. You've seen more things taking place with golf. And I think June 11th is the official beginning again of the uh, PGA Tour. But hockey's going to be up. Right. And so uh, it's... It, it, it's going to be a very confusing situation over the next, I think, month or so. But I think within two or three months, we're going to hear what the NCAA is going to say about sports going forward. Um, just changing gears a little bit, have you been watching any of the, the, the charity golf matches recently? Yes, I saw the charity golf uh, last week. Uh, yeah, yesterday and uh, the week before, yes. The the first one, Dustin Johnson and Rory, when those guys were playing, the biggest takeaway that I feel like a lot of people have had, which I'm sure potentially you can use in, in your work, is, you know, these guys are human. <laughs> and, and what was interesting about that was two things for me. The first one is you've heard on the PGA Tour that a lot of those professionals say, like, we don't like the way that our sport is covered because it seems like every shot is perfect because they only show the good shots. And so there's a lot of guys that hit bad shots, but they just don't make it on TV. So us viewers have unrealistic views. And then at our level, we go and play and we think like, well, we're terrible. The other part that's fascinating, you know, these guys were many were quarantined as well and many didn't pick up a club. And again, at their level, like they're still unbelievable, but you saw some shots that were like, Ooh, they're rusty too. It has, was it interesting to you or almost amusing a little bit to see like, Oh yeah, these guys are, are human too, so to speak. Or, I mean, you probably know that already though. Well, um, I, yeah, I guess we all know that part. I, when I saw some of the shots that took place uh, yesterday and last week without mentioning players names, uh, I think it's the human piece. Um, I think that there is a difference between what took place yesterday versus what took place the previous week in terms of competition, right. you know, the whole tiger Phil, uh, you know, with, uh, with Mickelson, with his tiger slayer putter, uh, you know, <laughs> concept. Um, and there was some great camaraderie that I saw between them. And I saw tiger acting in a way very differently than I think we've seen him in the past. Yeah. And the same thing with Phil. So I thought that there was a great camaraderie and certainly with the football players. I think that was a lot different than having four, you know, professional golfers out there playing. And uh, there were some great matches, some great shots. I think part of it was that it, it's probably in the spirit um, that it's that it's fun. It's good. I somehow think that yesterday's competition was up a notch uh, because of, I think of all the hype between uh, the match between Phil and Tiger. Right. Um, for your I guess let's talk golf now, the ones that are starting to get back in the competition potentially in the next few weeks. Do you have a conversation with them about tempering expectations that, hey, it's, it, you, you might be rusty, or is that not something you want to put in their head? Uh, you know, the way I deal with them, we've we been spending time uh, over, over the past several months, uh, you know, speaking about what's going on. And so uh, 
certainly all the golfers are working on the mental aspects of their performance throughout the year. So it's no different, except that the club wasn't in their hand like it was before. But what they've all heard from me is because, you know, if you're playing in the Northeast here, you know, where there are high school, even some collegiate athletes, where you're not able to get out, you know, with like pros are you know, like in the warm weather all the time, they've been relying on their mental process. So I don't, I don't think we're going to see that much of a difference in them. And since the basic themes of my instruction to them is always on excellence and execution, and it's never about winning, that that procedure has been uh, around all the time. There's no difference from what we've been doing over the past couple of months, except they're just not on the course. If you were to go, let's say football starts in September, let's just take our local team Rutgers. And again, let's assume that, that we can't have fans. If you were hired to go speak to the team, what would be your message to a team that's saying, okay, this is going to be different. We don't have fans. How, what would you say? You know, I think that there's ways to kind of influence that. So uh, you've seen this, uh, so it's kind of a long-winded answer, sure. but you've seen this in preparation for the Super Bowl. Like if so, if they're playing at Mile High Stadium or whatever, they would, teams would actually go up there and then they would put on their loudspeakers stands, fans. Yep. So they would actually hear sounds around them because what actually happens in open sports, uh, that's why we would like to hear a noise, you know, when someone's trying to stop you from doing something in open sports, is that you could still stimulate that. So the limbic system, you know, is, is getting stimulated by external kind of uh, information, you know, so hearing fans, that kind of thing. So I think that's one way to do this is actually pipe, you know, some stands, uh, fans into the, into, the, into the stands there. Yeah. Um, but I would always, 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 uh, with every athlete, it's always on how you're preparing yourself for each and every play. Every time you move, you have the opportunity to excel. And your attention should be on the execution of what you have to do in the moment. And if you do that, you're going to be in the moment. Now, if you're not used to it, okay, golfers can do that probably pretty easy. And football, maybe not so. But I think that there's a way that might kind of help them perform at a pretty high level by doing that. Nice. So my last kind of question comment just popped into my head. If, we were, if you were watching... Uh, yesterday, I thought one of the most interesting part for me, and I think it speaks to the competitor that he is, but how Brady in the front nine, how terrible he was playing. He was awful. And then yeah. Barkley said something to him, started chirping at him. And then again, it was lucky, obviously, but you see him actually get pissed. Then he hits a shot from like a hundred and whatever yards out, literally makes it. And then he starts chirping at Barkley. And to me, it was just like, that's why a guy like that, it's not even football. It's not even his main sport. He, he lo like that's that he loved the fact that he could kind of, it got him riled up. And I thought it was interesting. Did, did you catch that? I did. Uh, you know, I saw uh, that. I saw the shot and I saw, you know, the dynamic interaction. You can never leave Brady out, you know, and this is a tribute to who he is as a person, not just as an athlete. You know, because when you look at grit, I mean, I, I think probably the two grittiest players that I know were there yesterday, and it was Tiger and I think Brady. Yeah. And uh, although they were, you know, playing against one another. And so, but you could see that that's the case with them because nothing's ever left out. They have the ability to shake off uh, and recover um, emotionally very, very quickly. Both of them have uh, tremendous resilience and tremendous self-reliance. So um, Brady, obviously, in the sport where it's a team 
um, sport where he has to rely on everybody else, but he relies on himself so much. And Tiger has always obviously been very self-reliant, but that's the reason why I think that that would take place. Now, you know, had Bart, Bartley not, uh, Bart, uh, not chirping in his ear, would that have happened? I think he would have done it anyway. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, it, I was also thinking there, like there had to be a piece of Brady. I, my thought was like, He's got to be thinking, all right, I'm going to do this football thing, but watch out because when I retire, I'm going to show. I, I didn't put up a good fight today, but give me like a couple years of playing a couple times. I'll show everyone how good I actually am. That was just the, the, my thought on what he's going to do the way his mentality is, right? Well, I think uh, – I, I don't know that he turned into a pro go golfer like uh, Tony Romo, Romeo, I guess. Is, Romo, yeah, yeah. Uh, right, he's trying to. Um, and, I, you know, having been around the sport and seeing some high-level players, it's a – it, it's it's a very very different sport sure and um you know it's not about strength uh, and agility in the same way um i watched him yesterday and i could see some of the things that he was doing with his swing yeah uh, but then he was able to correct for it and i think that that's true so if he yeah. decides to you know he could probably play in some um some fairly good competitions uh, yeah. you know invitationals and play at a very high level. I, right. I doubt that he'd want to be on the road like uh, for sure. Like yeah, these tour yeah, players yeah. are. Yeah, I mean, even even a guy like Peyton Manning, and again, I don't claim to be a, a swing coach, but you know, you can see Peyton. His swing doesn't look professional, but he's still. I think he's like a four or five handicap, and he played really, really well. You look yeah. at again the analytical side. Someone showed a picture on Twitter of his scorecard from the day before, the notes he was taking, and obviously yeah. the the unbelievable athlete he is to be able to play like that with a amateurish swing so to speak well you know you're bringing up something uh that's tradition that is um specific to open sport athletes and again open sport is when somebody else has the responsibility of moving things and starting things you know it's like the whistle blows or the play begins mm -hmm. in golf you initiate so you you start things so when you look at what actually happens with open sport athletes their executive functioning cognitively is different. They have to be able to stop themselves from doing something and do just the opposite. So when you take a look at a football player, a basketball player, a soccer player going in one direction, you have to be able to change it. You have to expect the unexpected. That's not true of golfers. So when you take a look at how they actually analyze information and let alone quarterbacks that are doing audibles, right? They're calling the plays. So they have to be very fluid minded. They have to be able to correct in the moment. That's typical of them. Now, golfers were taught to do that, but it's not because they're facing it on every shot or under the gun, but those guys were trained that they have to do that, particularly when things are down. Uh, so their executive function is a little bit different, but it's, it's pretty cool to watch them be able to come into that sport and do it so well. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's awesome. Um, so... Dr. Nick, this is always enjoyable for me, but I always love your insight. And um, I wanted to do this because, again, we have a lot of athletes that we see, but as importantly, the parents, I think, as well. So right. um, where can just remind us where we can find you and where, where you're on social and all that type of stuff? Thank you, Justin. So you can get to my website at uh, drnickmolinaro.com. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you that are golfers, it's drnickgolf.com. And um, social media on Instagram, uh, Dr. Nick4328, mm -hmm. and uh, LinkedIn under my name. Perfect. Dr. Nick, thank you so much for being on. And I, I, uh, I look forward to putting this out and getting the, the feedback that we got after the last one. Thank you.
Always a pleasure, Justin. Your your questions are insightful. Uh, you can see clearly your empathy for what's going on, not just with the, the conditions that everybody's affected by, but how you stand behind the eyes of the parents and making sure you're trying to articulate some things that would help them. I appreciate that very much. Well, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast brought to you by Strive to Move. If your pain or injury is preventing you from living the healthy and active lifestyle you love and deserve and want to get back to doing what you love pain-free, we offer both a free ebook and free over-the-phone consultation to help you figure out the root cause of your pain and the best next steps to help resolve it. Find our ebooks online at strivetomove.com slash our services. There you'll find an ebook for topics on such things as back pain, knee pain, sports injuries, and CrossFit injuries. These eBooks will provide you with free expert advice, tips, and exercises to help solve your pain from the comfort of your own home. Just visit strivetomove.com slash our services to download your eBook and have it delivered directly to your inbox. We also offer free, no obligation phone consults with a doctor on staff to New Jersey residents. Just call us at 908-547-0729 or visit us at strivetomove.com and click the Talk to the Doctor First button on the homepage to schedule a call with us. Thanks again for joining us, and we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy New Jersey podcast.